trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Oh, we got a lot of wrong think to uh, revel in today. I hope you brought your church clothes. <laughs> okay, maybe it, maybe it won't get to quite that epic, but uh, I've got some fun stuff to share. I want to thank my sponsors who make this program possible on a day-to-day basis. They include ClimbingUpward.com. By the way, they also have uh, Climbing Upward Music. If you haven't uh, checked out uh, Dr. John Pulver's uh, work, I, I just got his book and I've just started to read uh, Surviving Your Family of Origin. Fascinating stuff. I don't know about you, but a lot of times I think uh, people carry stuff with them through life that they could put down or at least they could overcome if they wanted to. And John is uh, John just got a very productive take on uh, how to break out of that victimhood mentality and really become the best version of yourself. Also, thanks to TMCPNation.com, Borelli.com, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. So I want to start with something that's going to seem like kind of a weird flex, but uh, but I have to say this. I don't have a gold star on my driver's license. I know there are those of you, well, well, you have a driver's license. Well, you sell out. You know, why would you do that? But uh, in Idaho, you're given the option, would you like the gold star on your driver's license or not? And given that choice, I said I would prefer not to have it. Now, those of you who know, know. Uh, the gold star signifies that you are real ID compliant. And the only place that's really going to come into play is, uh, let's say I want to go get on an airplane. You know, of course, they're always going to ask, well, do you have a form of picture ID? And they're looking for that real ID to determine whether or not I'm worthy to board the aircraft. Well, I have a passport, and as long as my passport is valid, I go ahead and use that because that's an accepted form of identification for travel. Besides, I have hopes that I'll be getting over to Germany to visit my daughter over there, hopefully in in the next uh, little bit. But I don't want a real ID driver's license. And the reason I don't want it, it this goes back a long way. This goes all the way back to like 2008. I don't want it because I don't want my identity to become a government-granted privilege. Too easy to become an unperson, which we have a little bit of experience in what that might look like in what we saw play out over the last few years, especially the last three years. Well, there's a great article from Mike Meharry from the Tenth Amendment Center about how after 15 years, real ID is still in the process of being implemented. And I don't know if this is going to influence anybody, you know, to, well, maybe I don't want that gold star on my driver's license either, but I just offer this for your consideration. Mike says, on this date, this would have been May 11th, in 2008, the Real ID Act was supposed to go into effect, but it didn't. And it still isn't in full effect to this day. He says, last December, the Department of Homeland Security extended the enforcement deadline yet again for two more years, announcing it would not begin enforcing Real ID requirements until May of 2025. In fact, he says, the DHS has delayed the full implementation of Real ID multiple times since Congress passed the act in 2005 with an original implementation date of May 11th, 2008. 
even with the federal government badgering states and using the threat of turning them into virtual no-fly zones to compel the adoption of real ID, the feds have found it incredibly difficult to coerce states into compliance. He says the bottom line is due to intense opposition and foot dragging by the states, real ID won't be in effect until at least 17 years after the initial implementation date. And that's assuming that the Department of Homeland Security doesn't uh, extend the deadline once again. This proves that uh, the father of the Constitution, James Madison, was right. Nullification works. James Madison told us that a refusal to cooperate with officers of the Union would create very serious impediments to federal enforcement in just a single state. But if a number of states did the same, he said it would present obstructions which the federal government would hardly be willing to encounter. Mike's point is that's exactly what has happened with Real ID. So a little bit of background, just in case you uh, weren't aware of this. President George W. Bush signed the Real ID Act into law in 2005, essentially mandating a national ID system and putting the onus of implementation upon each state. But things did not go smoothly from the beginning, and by any conceivable measure, the implementation of Real ID has been an abject failure because of widespread state resistance and refusal to cooperate with the scheme. Now, just as an aside... I remember, because I was living in Utah at the time, that uh, Utah put its foot down. We are not going to participate in this, by gosh. But then they did. And I don't remember exactly how that came about. It was Maybe it was just the token appearance of, well, you know, we're not going to do that. And then uh, maybe some federal funding came up. And, well, you know, we really do want that. Well, okay, we'll quietly just implement this into our driver's licenses. But uh, lo and behold, there it is. So I'm just, I'm grateful that I live in a state where it's an option to have that or not. But uh, yeah, some states made noise like they were going to stand up against it, but ultimately they knuckled under. Now, Mike Meharry points out that many states simply ignored the law. Many rebelled outright for several reasons, including privacy concerns, along with the fact that Congress didn't provide any funding for those mandates it expected the states to implement. A large number of states simply chose not to act. New Hampshire, Missouri, Maine, Oklahoma, and others took things a step further, passing laws expressly prohibiting compliance with the national ID standards. And instead of forcing the issue, the feds issued waiver after waiver. The DHS started extending deadlines almost immediately. On January 29, 2008, the agency issued real ID regulations that created a gradual implementation schedule. States would have until the mandated implementation date of May 11, 2008 to become materially compliant with the act, but they could ask for an extension valid until the end of 2009. It also set a date of May 10, 2011 for full compliance. Now, in December 2009, the Department of Homeland Security extended the date for material compliance because a large majority of states and territories, we're talking 45 or 46 rather out of 56, have informed DHS they will not be able to meet the December 31st Real ID material compliance deadline. At the time, it left the full compliance date in place. Well, that date came and went. And in December of 2012, DHS announced only 13 states had met the law's requirements and that uh, beginning the following month, all the other states would get a deferment. And on and on it went... You know, for year after year, 10 years after its passage, more than half the states in the union still had not complied with Real ID. And of the 28 not in compliance, 21 had extension waivers till October of 2016. There is an impasse 
Edward Hasbrook, a a privacy advocate with the uh, Identity Project, told the New York Times in December 2015, there's been a standoff for more than a decade now. The feds have limited power to coerce the states in this case. Now, in 2016, the feds did ratchet up their bullying tactics, specifically threatening to stop accepting non-compliant licenses at TSA security checkpoints. This would effectively ground travelers from states that refuse to comply with the unconstitutional National ID Scheme. October 13, 2016, the Department of Homeland Security sent letters to five states denying their request for time extensions to bring their driver's license in compliance with Real ID. At the time, DHS set a 2018 guideline, but or deadline rather, but they still allowed for individual state extensions. Instead of standing their ground, though, politicians began to cave. Idaho reversed its ban on Real ID implementation in 2016. Oklahoma followed suit the next year. At least six other states reversed course during this time period. Missouri lifted its ban on Real ID in 2018. So after almost yearly implementation delays since 2008, it looked like DHS was going to get serious about enforcing the act in 2021. But in yet another about-face in April of that year, they extended the October 21st deadline to May of 2023. At the time, DHS said just 43% of Americans' driver's licenses were Real ID compliant. But as of December of last year, only 17% of IDs in Kentucky were Real ID compliant. So now we have a deadline of May 2025, and we'll see how that works out. We can't trust politicians to hold the line is one of the big lessons we can take away from this. Mike Meharry says, you know, these state legislators and governors held the feds at bay for over a decade, and it wasn't until they started to cave that Real ID gained any momentum toward implementation, even then. The federal government still has faced a rocky road. But he says, ultimately, it takes public action to stop government overreach. We can't just turn our heads and hope that elected officials will do their job. That only happens when we keep the pressure on. Great article, by the way, and some great background for a battle that you probably may not even have been aware was going on unless unless you've been flying unless you've run into some kind of, you know, compliance thing at a TSA checkpoint. I'm sorry, we can't accept this as a form of ID. I'm pushing back in a small way by saying no, I'm not going to have the gold star on my uh, my license. I guess that may mean I may be taking the bus at some point. But then again, I don't know. Getting to to skip the porno scanner or having somebody touch my privates? Yeah. I don't think I'm missing out on that much anyway. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Okay, I'm going to take you on a very strange uh, sideline here. This is... This is going way off the course for the day, but uh, but I saw this article and I thought, okay, I'm going to have to weigh in on this. And, and it starts with a confession. Whatever this may uh, change about how you think about me, but I'm a fan of Art Garfunkel. I grew up listening to Simon and Garfunkel as a kid. Uh, I still think uh, Scarborough Fair Canticle is one of the uh, it's one of the best and just most most haunting and uh, melancholy songs that I can remember from from my earliest earliest memories. But I like, I like a lot of the work that Art Garfunkel did. And I know he sometimes gets, you know, the second fiddle to Paul Simon who went on to, to great things. But 
This article by Douglas Flint on AmericanThinker.com is titled, Do Not Allow Art Garfunkel to Be Written Out of History. And he does raise a kind of interesting point here. He says, There was a magical time for modern music, loosely between 1955 and the end of the 20th century. Yet a very small percentage of it will survive the test of time. Now, again, if you're kind of an audiophile, if you like music, as I do, um, hopefully this catches your interest. Douglas Flint says, look, I don't expect the Turtles or Herman's Hermits to be remembered and listened to beyond the next decade. But he said, if I had to select an elite group of five or ten acts that will achieve immortality, Simon and Garfunkel is certainly in the top five and completely different from everyone else in the running. If you don't already know the sound of Art Garfunkel's unparalleled voice, well, he says, either leads, either singing lead or harmonizing in the most subtly perfect way, usually to Paul Simon's brilliant compositions and lyrics, you're a very poor person. So he says, go enrich yourself. It's free. He says, about four years ago, I was listening to Sirius XM satellite radio while I worked. I was tuned to Channel 21, listening to Chris Carter's show on the Underground Garage, when I heard the host commit a most egregious error. Having just played a Simon and Garfunkel song, he described it as an early Paul Simon song. Now, he says, I knew the host to be a knowledgeable fellow who was in the music industry, so I was baffled. But as my wife always says, let it go. So I did, until a month or two later when I heard a similar slight, but this time over the FM airwaves. I knew something was amiss. There was something bigger in the air. And he says, my fear was confirmed when I saw a live concert with the female all-star lineup, Ella King, Joan Jett, and headlined by Hart. Now we can skip the all, or skip all the first female hard rock band accolades. Hart, the Wilson sisters, Anne and Nancy, are just a very talented, solid rock band. And as is the case with a lot of bands from the second and third generation of rock who are on tour these days, they now have the freedom to cover songs that influenced them when they were growing up. So he says, my ears perked up as I heard a familiar chord being strummed while Ann Wilson told the story of singing around the campfire to this Paul Simon song, The Boxer. And Douglas Flint says, I just about spontaneously combusted. The Wilson sisters are a lot of things, stupid not being one of them. She heard that song the same way I did on the Simon and Garfunkel album, Bridge Over Troubled Water. Or she heard it on the radio where it charted at number seven, always introduced as Simon and Garfunkel. So he says, now I knew some kind of conspiracy was afoot. Final confirmation came via Susanna Hoffs, a founding member, lead singer, and guitar player for the wildly successful all-female 80s band, The Bangles. He says, I listen to most of my music on YouTube now. I pay for the commercial-free subscription, and any and everything I want, wanted, or could conceive of wanting could be found there. That's where I discovered that Susanna Hoffs never stopped performing. So I caught up with many of her post-Bangles performances. He says, she is truly a goddess and it is proof of the unfairness of the world that some man other than me actually got to marry her. So there she is, performing and talking about the Bangles and their breakout song that put them on the map, a cover of Simon and Garfunkel's Hazy Shade of Winter, which she describes as an early Paul Simon song. Shot through the heart by a goddess. Can you even recover from that? Now, he says, I can hear rebuttals forming in the mind of other aficionados, so let's cover them. The first most obvious retort is that Paul Simon wrote every Simon and Garfunkel song of note that was not a cover, and therefore they are Paul Simon songs. Well, in a court of law, 
the songs did indeed belong to Paul Simon, though he sold the whole catalog to Sony in 2021. But the world is not a court of law. We do not refer to Beatles songs as early Paul McCartney songs or early George Harrison songs. They are Beatles songs, and for any of you FM DJs out there, a Wings song and a Beatles song do not constitute a twofer on Two for Tuesday. Rolling Stones songs are not referred to as Jaggers or Richards songs. Ray Davies wrote most of the Kinks songs, but we don't call them early Ray Davies songs. The songs of Simon and Garfunkel were a collaborative effort and are distinctly different from Paul Simon's successful solo career. The works of Simon and Garfunkel have won many awards in the name of Simon and Garfunkel. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the name of Simon and Garfunkel. So, so what gives? Douglas Flint says, I don't know who or what forces are orchestrating this. It is not possible that three music industry figures as diverse as Ann Wilson, Susanna Hoffs, and Chris Carter all decided to start referring to Simon and Garfunkel songs as Paul Simon songs. He says, the most likely suspect is Paul Simon, but I have no proof of this other than the fact that they, Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, have an intense distrust of each other since their earliest years together, which seems to have grown into a full-blown blood feud. Now, he says, if I'm wrong and Paul Simon has not orchestrated this attempt to airbrush Garfunkel out of history, then I apologize to Paul Simon and call upon him to right this wrong. Paul Simon was always going to succeed. He's too talented a songwriter and too good a guitar player not to. But there is a difference between run-of-the-mill, a run-of-the-mill rock career and the superstardom that Simon and Garfunkel achieved. He says, as curious adolescents, my friends and I often tried to make gunpowder, but the authorities were too smart. There was always one chemical you couldn't purchase. We tried to improvise. We made impressive smoke bombs, but no explosions. Thank goodness. Art Garfunkel was Paul Simon's missing ingredient. Without him, you've got smoke, but not the explosion that was Simon and Garfunkel. Again, this is Douglas Flint writing for AmericanThinker.com. I get it. This is kind of a departure. Well, why, how, how does this have to do with the current state of affairs? And it doesn't. I guess plain and simple. I'm just sharing this with you because I grew up listening to their music too. And, and I, I love Garfunkel's contributions. I think that, uh, I think that Douglas Flint is right. These two are destined to, to be enjoyed for many, many generations to come. There aren't very many musical acts that could say that. Now, is there a conspiracy? I don't know. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to put it past anything at this point just because uh, there, there are attempts to rewrite history or to gaslight us into thinking, oh, there was no such thing. Daryl Hall always performed on his own. There's no such thing as John Oates. What, what are you talking about? Anyway, if you enjoy music, hopefully this at least brings back a few good memories or at least sparks you to maybe make a little pilgrimage over to YouTube and just... Spend a little bit of time reminiscing. I don't know about you, but once in a while, someone will, will post a link to a, a particular song where I just think, man, I haven't heard that for years. And I don't, know what the, I don't know what the psychological phenomenon is or if there's some kind of physiological phenomenon, but I'm one of those people, when I hear a song that, uh, that I really liked and I haven't heard you know, for decades, that I have completely forgotten, I get serious goosebumps on goosebumps. It's almost like a rush in listening to those songs. I have no idea what causes that. If there's anybody who understands human physiology or human psychology that can help me sort that out, I'd love to know. I'm not exactly scared of it, but it is kind of curious. And, and you know, it's maybe it's just the power of nostalgia. Maybe it's just, you know, the power of memories coming back. I have no idea. 
but I do enjoy my music. It's funny, too. I'll, I'll make this small confession just as I go to break here. Uh, my kids, when I get together with my kids, and we spent time with uh, five out of my six kids this last week, um, my kids all have a playlist on their phones, which is called Dad. It's the Dad Music Playlist. And it's this weird, eclectic mix of music that they heard growing up as my kids. And I mean, it covers everything from Frank Sinatra to Glenn Campbell to, you know, Motley, not Motley Crue so much. I wasn't a big fan, but like Van Halen. It's, yeah, it's a little bit of everything. And I I guess they, when they get missing me, that's what they put on. They listen to dad's music. I take that as a real honor. I think it is. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'm not promising this is going to solve every problem in the world for you. Maybe it won't even solve any problems. But if you are looking for some thoughtful commentary or some enlightenment as to what's going on in our world today, I I put together a pretty good collection each and every day that I do this program. And I share it free of charge with those who would like to subscribe. All you have to do, I've made this as simple as possible, go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, and down at the bottom of whatever edition of show notes, click on the show notes button. It'll take you right to there. Pick a day. At the bottom of the page, you will find a subscribe button. It will ask you for your email. And if you share your email with me, understand it will not go any further than me. I don't share it. I don't sell it. I don't bombard you with spam. You know, you're not going to be getting lots of amazing offers and invitations to multi-level marketing opportunities, but I will share my show notes just in case uh, there are things you find interesting. So that's, that's how it's done. Here's a question for you. Who benefits from the endless activism of the anti-hate, hate industry? Great article on American Greatness by Edward Ring. And uh, I, I love something he points out here is how the anti-hate, hate industry actually creates the tribalism that it claims to be fighting. Yeah, it creates the division that it says it's trying to heal. And the only beneficiary of all the hate it creates is, surprise, surprise, the hate industry itself. So he starts with a quote from uh, President Biden speaking at Howard University last week. The most dangerous terrorist threat to our homeland is white supremacy. Oh, good old Biden. <laughs> By the way, I, I, have to, I have to share this with you before I go any further. There was a wonderful quote in, uh, this was from the, the Good Citizen Substack. If you haven't subscribed to The Good Citizen, you really should consider doing this. Uh, the Good Citizen was describing Joe Biden as the planted amalgamation of plasma and dead skin cells, holding cue cards, sniffing kids, and stumbling around the White House. I don't know why, but that hit me as uh, not only extremely descriptive, but actually really on target. So um, I, I present for your consideration... The Good Citizen Substack. Very, very good writing there. All right, let's jump into this article here from Edward Ring. He says, in the aftermath of September 11th, 2001, when establishment politicians started to make common use of the term homeland, they told us the most dangerous threat to Americans was foreign terrorists. But today we're instructed to fear the enemy within. 
A new iconic date, January 6th, 2021, is now inscribed on our collective consciousness. From coast to coast, Americans are being herded into two camps. There are the white supremacists, those bad people who purportedly hate good people, and then there is everyone else, good people who are encouraged to hate the bad people. So the common thread, to state the obvious, is hate. As as, uh, Joe Biden's would-be successor, doing his part to nurture and support the hate industry, California Governor Gavin Newsom on May 4th announced the launch of California versus Hate, a new statewide hotline to report hate acts in California. Proclaiming that hate will not be tolerated, the the governor said that Californians will have another tool to ensure that not only justice is served, but that individuals have access to additional resources to help deal with the lingering wounds that remain after such a horrendous crime occurs. Now, Edward Ring says, look, this is agenda-driven hype. The agenda perfectly expressed by author Michael Schellenberger in a Substack post last week is to manufacture a fake hate crisis as a pretext for mass spying, blacklists, and censorship. The hype, also exposed by Schellenberger in his recent article, is underscored by the fact that over the last 10 years, hate crime convictions, as opposed to criminal complaints of hate crimes, have not increased at all. In a state with 40 million people, hate crime convictions were a minuscule 109 in 2021 and a negligible increase from 107 in 2012. The hate industry, he says, is a vast agglomeration of lucrative hustles now institutionalized and expanded into multiple and overlapping sectors. There's the diversity, the diversity, equity, and inclusion sector, or DEI, the equity, social, and governance, or ESG sector, the activist sector comprising countless groups, including Black Lives Matter and Antifa, the corporate, academic, and government sectors, the media sector, the politicians, and the pundits. All of these sectors have spawned scores of thousands of well-paying jobs. If these institutions weren't able to point to rising levels of hatred in America, then their specialty, the business of hate, would no longer be a growth industry. Where there is no hate, they must manufacture it. Where hatred has diminished, they must discover new forms of hate, often so subtle that we foolishly fail to recognize it without their assistance. It's a dangerous and divisive game. For hate to exist, you have to have a hater and a victim of hate. And who might they be? Well, a list of Newsom's community-specific resources for people targeted for hate may provide a clue. Virtually every imaginable group is listed as people targeted for hate, including communities living at the intersection of multiple identities. Coming soon. Isn't that great? Resources for those who live at the intersection of multiple identities is coming soon. They're awfully busy. It's the state of California's Civil Rights Department. These, we are told are the victims. Now, not listed, of course, are heterosexual or cisgender white males who speak English and lack learning disabilities, physical disabilities, mental health disabilities, or are elders or students or don't belong to the Muslim, Sikh, Hindu, or Jewish communities. Got that? If someone is a member of this rapidly disappearing fraction of California's population, there are no community resources. These, then, are the haters. The problem for Newsom and Biden and every other hate-hyping demagogue in America is that the data doesn't validate the hate narrative. To keep the industry supplied with the fuel of hatred, Newsom must differentiate between hate crimes because hardly any of these occur. And hate incidents, which, like harvested ballots, appear in numbers proportional to the amount of money invested to procure them. Here's how Newsom's Department of Civil Rights describes a hate incident. Quote, 
a hostile expression or action that may be motivated by bias against another person's actual or perceived identity or identities. Now, if that seems vague, Edward Ring says that's on purpose. When trolling for hate incidents cast as wide a net as possible, a hostile expression that may be motivated by bias, well, that's awfully broad and it's awfully subjective. And to ensure California's epidemic of hate is fully documented, a California versus hate portal has been set up through the Submit Hate Incident or Hate Crime Report button, which is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week on your desktop or mobile device. Now, if you click through this online interface to the main screen, you will learn that the types of crime or incident that qualify include cyberbullying, internet harassment, text, email, or social media, verbal harassment, hate literature flyers, hate mail, and several other categories offering an almost unlimited latitude of qualifying criteria. So anyone who thinks the number of reported hate incidents can't be goosed upward by marketing a site like this should reflect on just how trivial some of the alleged transgressions have been that attracted wide publicity and outrage. California's local television networks in the Sacramento area were agog a few years ago with a report that flyers stating it's okay to be white were posted around the campus of the University of California at Davis. News reporters interviewed college officials who were shocked and terrified and anxious to assert their commitment to keeping UC Davis safe from these triggering flyers. The presumption was that this rather innocuous assertion was hate literature. Now, exactly why this was considered hate literature was not explained. During the 2020 election season, the need for evidence of alarming white supremacist activity was so desperate that national television networks for several days ran a story about a white man who yelled anti-Asian slurs at some Asian diners in a restaurant in Carmel Valley, California. Now, the point here isn't to excuse the man's comments. For all we know, maybe he deserved the dogpile that followed. But it wouldn't have mattered. The hate machine needed to find a hater, so there was never any attempt to contextualize the incident. What made this man angry? How much had he been drinking? Were the diners he insulted being disruptive, noisy, or rude? Was there no provocation whatsoever? But see, the answers are beside the point. This incident, while unpleasant and regrettable, did not merit national news coverage. It had no geopolitical significance. It was national news because it was the only example available that week. In a nation of 330 million people, during a time when it was important for the hate industry to foment a national terror of white supremacy. Recognize any of that today? It's bigger than ever with the hate machine still focused on white, racist hate crimes. And if the perpetrator isn't white, like the Latino man who just murdered five people in Texas, well, the hate machine makes sure to play down that fact, but is sure to mention he's a suspected Nazi sympathizer. This is a wonderful article, by the way. This, this is very, very well written, and I'm going to let you discover the rest of it for yourself. It's included in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Again, this is Edward Ring, writing for amgreatness.com. It's American Greatness. The hate industry, and it is an industry. I've noticed that there are people who love to use the word grifter to describe anyone who's earning a living without their express permission. How dare you earn a living when I disagree with you so vehemently? But if you want to see what a grift is, it's it's creating controversy for the sake of, look, controversy. Now give me money so that I can go out there and find more controversy. That's how a grift works. We're getting played, folks. Probably should be aware of that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I just have to encourage, please, if for no other reason, go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and check out this Edward Ring article on the hate industry, which creates the tribalism it claims to fight and is the only beneficiary of all the hate that it uh, creates. And there is a hidden agenda that he talks about, too, in that they actually are creating more hate and more division. Very, very interesting stuff. And, and it, it keeps us divided. Unfortunately, we, we find ourselves playing into it. That's not a good feeling. By the way, um, it's tempting. When, you, when you're up against this kind of stuff, and it's, it's not for the purpose of you know, trying to convince you here, look, here's, here's reason. I want you to, to see things my way or at least consider that here's a point of view that, that may be worth considering. No, this is about just wearing you down and grinding you into compliance with whatever it takes. And under those circumstances especially as you watch society get crazier and crazier. And, uh, you know, the guy who stands up for passengers who are being menaced on the subway now faces, you know, criminal charges because uh, the person who was threatening to kill everybody died after being restrained at a chokehold. I don't know, man. I, you know, it's tragic, I think, on a number of levels. Even, even people who are truly loathsome in their behavior, which I believe the individual who died was, was being a, a menacing monster to the people around him. It's still tragic, but things are so inverted. You know, oh, well, it was a white guy who put that chokehold on him, and oh, you know, his color of skin was wrong, and therefore it's a it's a terrible, terrible crime. See, stuff like that is enough to make you want to just embrace a mentality of indifference, right? I mean, you've heard the saying, "It's not my circus, not my monkeys." I'm going to turn my back on this. You know, you can you can watch this thing go to hell in a basket, and and I, I don't even care. Gary Barnett, in an article published on LewRockwell.com today, asks, is unlocking closed and indifferent minds possible? He actually makes a very strong case that it would be a big mistake for us to allow indifference to take hold. He uses a quote from Jonathan Bryce to start out. He says, we are seeing a globalization of indifference. There's a culture of conflict, which makes a culture of conflict, rather, which makes us think only of ourselves makes us live in soap bubbles, which, however lovely, are insubstantial. We become used to the suffering of others. It doesn't affect me. No one in our world feels responsible. And Gary Barnett says, look, it should be very apparent. This is a contentious subject, a a double-edged sword of sorts, and one that requires open and honest explanation. It should be obvious, but it is not, that no one can forcibly open another person's closed mind or tame and stifle his indifference. No matter the power wielded, no matter the desired intent, no matter the gallant effort wasted or not, each person is a unique individual regardless of his collective desires or his cowardice in the face of adversity and human suffering. Each of us has to come to his own conclusions, right or wrong, and while it's noble to attempt to educate and bring forth some truth and reason, to those who are lacking initiative to willfully obtain knowledge, it's an aggressive affront to demand compliance with one's personal wishes. He talks about how the indifference and apathy that consumes the common man, especially in this current world of lost hope, the great ambition of the masses for personal gratification above all else, the lack of individual awareness and responsibility, and the extreme tyranny being pursued by those who choose to rule over others, cannot be remedied by hostility, regardless of the sorry state in which humanity finds itself today. 
He says what's happened to the human mind and behavior is a stark reminder of the seemingly unlimited flaws of man. To have reached this level of existence required that society as a whole had to forego almost all normal and traditional thinking, caring, and empathy in favor of a cold and callous presence of mind. And while that may seem like a harsh observance, he asks, is it really? Consider the absolute mass division that's been allowed to take hold in this country. The atrocious behavior now accepted as normal. The intentional blindness to our societal plight, the confusion as to our natural human biology, the abuse and perversion against children worldwide, and the allowance of total terror and lies at the hands of the ruling class, its media mouthpieces, and all its government pawns. He says it's as if all human imagination, love, joy, splendor, and responsibility have been lost in a sea of ignorance, indifference, and hate. Maybe many think that's the only way to survive this madness is just to hide from it. But he says that's the antithesis of any reasonable solution possible. It is the individual, after all, that is our savior in extreme times of strife, psychological pressures, and the absurdities of life. At this point in time, he says, we face not only our own demons, but the possibility of the annihilation of our species. The situation is that dire. He says, we all know what's happened in the past few years. But that has been just the culmination of a multi-generational decline in human morality and existence. None of it accidental, consequential, or natural, as all of our ills are caused by those who purposely build and define the state's narrative, and all those who allow it to happen without challenge. In other words, placing blame on one or the other, while convenient to weak minds, is asinine and short-sighted as all who either strive to rule or voluntarily accept that rule are at fault. Gary Barnett says most, of, most all of human existence in history has been consumed by theft, war, slaughter, killing, irresponsibility, uh, confusion, immorality, self-pity, and dependence on the worst of mankind, the rulers, kings, presidents, congresses, dictators, and tyrants. Most all of this was voluntarily accepted, and that is the absurdity of our worldly presence. In this country called America, the masses have supported over and over again for all of our history one aggressive war after another, where tens of millions of innocent men, women, and children were slaughtered only in the name of God or country. This happened not due to any actual or legitimate defense, but due to a pathetic, easily fooled public who succumbed, succumbed rather to the horrendous nationalism instead of to moral principles. And in all these occasions, most stood by without resistance, turned their heads, or even more common, applauded the murder of others at the hands of their rulers. I know this kind of stings, doesn't it, right? Gary Barnett says, any act of inhumanity willingly accepted without challenge by any of you, any act of depravity against others ignored, any act of aggression by any individual or country against innocence, against innocence, rather, left unanswered, whether one against another or whether sanctioned by the nation-state, is inhumane and indefensible. No one has a right to claim to be human in the face of inhumanity openly permitted. Closed minds and indifference breeds an environment capable of finding unlimited excuses for ignoring or accepting immorality, violence, and brutality. This is not acceptable to any caring, compassionate, or thinking individual. It's the essence of cowardice and unfettered apathy and those who ignore the plight of the aggressive harm of innocence, whether those aggressors are individuals, gangs, or the heinous state, but I repeat myself, he says it matters not. 
It is not possible to open another person's mind or eliminate his indifference to humanity by force, as each independent individual has to accept responsibility for himself alone. The rest of us can only educate and supply truthful, compelling information to those willing to listen. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And you can lead a closed mind, indifferent, ignoramus to the truth and responsibility, but you can't force him to accept it. This is the reality of humans. All who understand the importance of real freedom, of independent and critical thinking, and who strive for a better world of peace, harmony, and true personal justice are up against mammoth odds, as history does surely support. And Gary Barnett says we can never turn our backs and give up, for to do so makes us the same as those who cause the insanity. To give up means the loss of all that is good. And he says that world should be avoided at all cost. I hope that doesn't make you feel guilty so much as feel motivated. But I can tell you, I've, I've been very tempted to embrace that. Yeah, you know, to heck with all of them. I'm turning my back. I don't want anything to do with it. Well, this one kind of pricked my heart. Makes me think, you know, maybe that indifference isn't really the best approach. I present it to you to do with as you will. But I was surprised that uh, that one actually kind of struck a nerve with me. One final uh, article I'm not going to go into, but I am going to mention. If it feels like the middle class is being systematically destroyed, there's actually a very good reason for that. And I've got an article that I'll link in today's show notes from Michael Snyder explaining why the financial strain that we're feeling has come about and how the game is being rigged. He's got some facts and figures in this article that really blew my mind in that, uh, you know, he he talks with with somebody who was describing, well, you know, I was working a job at Home Depot back in the 1990s and I think was making, you know, like, uh, I don't know, 10 bucks an hour during the weekdays and maybe, you know, 1250 on the weekends. And the, the crazy thing is, you know how much that job pays today? Twelve fifty an hour. <laughs> you, know, you know how much more expensive everything else is? Well, gas was 99 cents a gallon back then. Milk was a buck 29 a gallon. When's the last time you topped off your tank or went grocery shopping? Yeah, something's afoot. And it uh, sure feels like uh, we're all on the receiving end of a boot, if you get my drift. This is The Brian Hyde Show.